0: Our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43-48, through 48, as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Hear now the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need you, especially as we hear these hard words that we're not just to love our friends, our neighbors, but also those whom we might count our enemies. Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would give us understanding, change our hearts where there is sin and hatred abiding, help us to abide in you. We pray for anointing for the preacher and the hearer alike. These things we ask in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus. Amen. Saving the best for last. We like to do that, don't we? It's why we save the best course for last, dessert, unless your mom's not watching and you eat it first. It's why at a concert... The, the big name sings last and all the upstarts are the ones who open the show. It's why the best part of the day is at the end of the day when the kids are finally in bed and you have an opportunity to sit down and actually speak to your spouse. Well, Jesus saves the best for last here. No, he's not done with the Sermon on the Mount, but rather what I'm saying is that he is saving the best... Uh, for this section, for the, for the last part of it, we've been going through six statements uh, in which Jesus is going to say, You've heard this, but I tell you that. He's not saying that the the Old Testament was wrong or that he's giving us some sort of new law. He is actually readdressing the law and and how it had been perverted and how folks had misunderstood it and were not applying it. Apparently, Jesus is saying that the law has always been concerned with the heart and not just externals, which is really what the the Pharisees, the religious zealots of the day, uh, were preaching. And so he saves the best for last about love, but it's also the hardest, the hardest of these six sayings. You know, we are called to love God and to love neighbor. These things really summarize the, the law of God. And, and apart from loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, I can't think of a harder commandment than the one we receive in this text. And that is the idea that we are called Not just not to hate our enemies, but to actually love them. What a a commandment. Jesus tells us this morning, and we'll see this theme throughout our time together. Jesus tells us this morning that we can't hate anyone. Instead, our relationships with others are to be defined by the kind of love that Christ has for us. Oh, we need God's grace, don't we? As I look at my life, my my standard of what I think is appropriate towards folks I don't like or can't stand or, or might call my enemies, oh, what I think is right, it doesn't measure up to God's standard. Well, why is he dealing with this? Well, Jesus begins this section with verse 43 by saying, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor. And hate your enemy. Now, where had they heard this before? Why is he saying this? Where had they heard this said? Well, apparently, this was the teaching of the Pharisees. And you'll remember that the Pharisees were the most zealous of the the Jewish religious leaders. Now, there are two parts of this statement. Uh, The first is that we should love our neighbor, and and that sounds familiar. In fact, it's nothing new. Jesus isn't making something up here. I mean, he's the lawgiver, so he gave it in the Old Testament. He knows it well, and, and it's straight out of the Old Testament. It was given to us in Leviticus 19.18, which says this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's pretty clear. The problem is with the second part of the statement. The first part, you shall love your neighbor. The second part, you shall hate your enemy. You know, at first blush, it sounds like hate your enemy might sound kind of like a pious thing to do. Shouldn't we hate those things which God hates? If we are to love our neighbor, doesn't that mean that there are those who aren't our neighbor, and therefore we don't have to love them? Well, the problem is that this statement is nowhere in the Old Testament. This statement is nowhere in the Old Testament. The Pharisees were actually teaching their sinful reaction to folks they didn't like as the law of God, and that's really bad, isn't it? In fact, the Old Testament teaches the exact opposite of what the Pharisees were teaching. Proverbs twenty five twenty one says this, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. You know, it's true that God and His people had many enemies in the Old Testament. They still do, by the way. But this does not give us or them, God's people in the Old Testament, or the Pharisees of Jesus' day, the ability, the right, the privilege to make anybody their or our personal enemies. See, when we read of God's wrath in the Old Testament, when we read what are called the imprecatory st- psalms, when the psalmist is calling out for God to destroy his enemies, to take them out, those are ones that are thinking on a big scale, of a, from a civic or, or judicial level, that God in his justice would deal with those who have opposed God. But nowhere does it say in the Old Testament that it is okay to hate anyone. In fact, the beginning of Leviticus 19.18, which gives us the same passage, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, it begins like this. It says, you shall not take vengeance or even bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. The Pharisees had divided up the world into categories. I mean, ultimately it came down to us and them. They did so in the best way possible in order to make the law of God easiest to obey. Remember, the Pharisees thought that you had to obey in order to be saved, that your salvation was based upon your self-righteousness, how well you did obeying God's law. And so they redefined the the law of God in order to make themselves look the best they could. They had moved the goalposts. They had entered the cheat codes into the game. They had ignored the hard parts of the directions. The folks they liked and the ones they were liked by, those were their neighbors. The lovely people, those were folks that they had an obligation to love. Everyone else was their enemy. Since they were Jews, that meant every one of every other religion, that is those Gentiles, were their enemies. The Romans, they were their enemies because the Romans had occupied Israel. Those who worked for the Romans, like the tax collectors, were also their enemies. Those who were terrible sinners, like prostitutes, they were their enemies. But then also the Jews who didn't take the law of God as seriously as they did, they were their enemies. Perhaps even the Sadducees, the the other religious and political parties, they were their enemies. And certainly Jesus was their enemy because He was claiming to be the Messiah. You know, basically it came down to, if you were a Pharisee, you were a neighbor. Everybody else, you're an enemy. You know, it must have been rather exhausting to have that many enemies and to be filled with that much hatred for others. But perhaps our hearts aren't all that different from the Pharisees. For we are often all too quick to put others in categories that would make them not our neighbor. And therefore, we think we don't have to love them. You know, our opposition, it might be outright hatred, but it also might be a little more polite, be a little more socially acceptable. It might be a a deep-seated but hidden animosity. It might be a deep bitterness in our hearts towards someone that we just intend never to let go it might be an automatic disposition towards someone that is negative, that we are just committed to not letting change. We can come up with all sorts of reasons to hate folks. There might be impersonal reasons, ones that, aren't, that don't deal with us and them personally, like a politician that you, you just really don't like. Someone might have a crazy political idea. They might, someone might vote for a different political party or Someone might not live the way that we do. They might be from a different country or even a different region. They might have a different background or culture. They might have a different skin color. They might go to a different church. They may be an Armenian or a Calvinist or a Calvinist or Arminian. They might even root for the wrong football team. You know, it's amazing when I told some of my uh, college buddies that I was marrying my gorgeous, amazing, beautiful, godly bride, Christy. They thought I was crazy. Not because of all the things I've just said, but because she's an Auburn graduate, and I graduated from Alabama. They couldn't get past that, that thing. They, they, they just had this deep-seated hatred for everyone who rooted for Auburn. Really? Really? This would keep you from marrying someone? but we might also have hatred for someone for a more personal reason. This is a text full of tension, and and let's not take the tension out of it. We might hate someone because they've sinned against us, hurt us, or hurt someone whom we love. Or they might have disagreed with us. There's a lot of that going on or if they took something personally we said, or we took something personally they said, they might not like us, and so we just feel like we should return the compliment. They might, even as our relatives or wayward children or sisters, brothers, parents, have made terrible decisions that affect not just them, but the whole family, even on a financial level. They might not even have it together, right? Right? There are a lot of reasons that we justify our hatred for others. And sometimes we even put a religious veneer on it, like the Pharisees did. So what does Jesus say? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now there's a negative and a positive command here. The negative one is implied, and that it is that we can't hate. If we're going to love, we can't hate. Those things, oil and water, they can't be together together. So we have to ask ourselves, and I encourage you to ask yourself have we let hatred of anyone, including those whom we might naturally see as our enemies, have we allowed hatred of anyone to fill our hearts? Jesus is saying that hatred is not an option for anyone, towards anybody. Bitterness, sinful anger, murderous hearts, these elements of hatred cannot be contained in our lives. We, we can't harbor hatred towards others and think it's not going to affect every other part of our lives, including our relationship with the Lord. I'm not saying you lose your salvation. But certainly, if you hate someone in your heart, if, you are, if the first thing you think of when you wake up is, is hatred and bitterness towards someone, then, then that is going to rob you of intimacy with God. Hatred is evidence that something is foul in our hearts. Here are some Diagnostic questions that I encourage you to consider. Is your mind constantly filled with negative thoughts towards someone or some group of people? Is it constantly filled with those things? That you have actually given them control over your life? The second one, what is your initial reaction when that certain person walks in the room is it just dread is it does your blood start to boil that's a terrible way to live y'all we've all been there we've all done it third are your negative thoughts about someone because they've hurt your pride or because they've sinned against the glory of god there is a such thing as righteous anger and indignation but most of the time, our anger is, is not biblical, it's not godly. And anger quickly turns into hatred and bitterness. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. It's not just that we can't hate our enemy, but we have to positively love them. Really? 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 First, though, let's clarify a few things. Um, love is something in our culture that we just don't understand well. Uh, a lot of times we think of love as an ooey gooey feeling, like a bride and groom on their wedding day. Now, the Lord gives us those kind of affections, He gives us those ooey gooey emotions, uh, and those are great. Praise God when those things happen. But, but love is much more than a feeling, it's a commitment. Ultimately, it's a commitment to the good of another. And that's how we can love an enemy. Someone who is uh, perhaps hurting folks, who is deep in sin. We can disagree with what they're doing, but, but desire what is good for them. That's love. Having a commitment to working towards their good. Also, we must say that in our culture, we've confused love with always agreeing with someone, right? Or their way of life or their actions, You can disagree with someone's opinion, political views, their way of life, their choices, even sinful choices, and still love them. You don't have to approve of those things. We cannot equate approval and love. Think about our children, right? We don't always approve of what they do. That's why we discipline them. We don't approve of what they do, but we discipline them because we love them. True love goes beyond a season, beyond an action, and is focused on the good of the person. Thirdly, just to say that we love someone doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for actions. You can love someone and call the cops. You can love someone and press charges. Indeed, as we think about being loving towards the widow and the orphan, the vulnerable in our culture, it is loving to protect them, which is going sometimes to include getting the law involved. So what does this kind of love look like? How how are we to be committed to the good of those whom we don't like, those who have sinned against us, those who are evildoers? Well, let's think of a a few biblical examples. Think of Stephen. Stephen. Do you remember Stephen? He was the first Christian martyr. We read about him in Acts chapter 7. He had just been ordained the chairman, the first chairman, or the first diaconate in Acts chapter 6. And then we read that he gets arrested in Jerusalem because he had been preaching and doing many great wonders. Appearing before the Sanhedrin, which was the governing council for the Jews, uh, he preaches the gospel to them, and he is condemned to death by stoning you know, if there's any, uh, any legitimate reason to hate someone, I would think this would be it. Here is one who is preaching the good news of a good Savior of how we can have our sins forgiven and be saved from the eternal fires of hell. Who could be against that? That's fantastic, best news ever given, period, full stop. And yet, they condemn him to death. They stone him. And so we pick him up, pick his story up in Acts chapter 7, Verses 59 through 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, as it was happening, he is near death. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen didn't hate these men who are seeking to persecute him, seeking to thwart the very kingdom of God, which can't be thwarted by the way. And instead of hatred, he has love for them, compassion on them. He saw that their sin was part of the problem of a heart that didn't love the Lord, and he prays that God would forgive them. You know, he wasn't filled with rancor and hate, anger and bitterness. Um, certainly we see the prime example of Jesus and his response. Not just at his death, right? Not just going through the passion. But throughout his ministry, he had compassion on sinners. He had compassion on tax collectors. Those who were running away from God. God calls us to respond to others in love and not hate when others sin against us. And I know that's tough. Personally, I know that's tough. We are called to respond in love and not hate when others who don't know Jesus oppose us. When we are hurt to seek the good of the oppressor. And ultimately the best thing that could happen to that oppressor is to see their sin, repent of it, and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Does it really help others to know Jesus if we respond to hate with hate? That we fight fire with fire? Does it really point others to the love of God if we are consumed with bitterness one for another? No. No. There's also that personal cost to hatred. That personal cost to hatred, you know, you, you feel like. You're justified in your hatred and that hatred fuels you for a little while and then suddenly it is out of control and it consumes your life. One of the most powerful ways that we can fight hatred in our hearts is through prayer. Jesus says in our text to pray for those who persecute you. Many have noted that it's difficult and nigh impossible to be angry, sinfully angry, or to hate someone when you're praying for them. You know, one of the best ways, if you have a negative emotion towards someone, if you can't stand someone, if someone gets on your nerves, you know, whatever category you want to put that in, one of the best ways that you can change your heart, I'm not talking about them, I'm talking about your heart, my heart, is to begin to pray for them, not pray against them, right? To pray for them. For their salvation, if they don't know the Lord Jesus, to pray that the Lord would bless their lives, that they would remain healthy, that God would provide for them, that God would bless their marriages and children. And sometimes over time, sometimes it takes time, God will begin to remove that bitterness in our hearts. Well, why would we do this? Well, Jesus is going to give us three reasons in this text, and we can find at least another, and we'll explore a fourth somewhere else in the Word of God. The first is that we, when we read this rather enigmatic statement in verse 45a, we read this, "...so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven." Now that's rather enigmatic. So that. So do this, so that. So here we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. That's a biblical concept. And so we read over in uh, John one twelve. We read this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So becoming a child or a son of God is not done through works, it is done through faith in Jesus Christ. And so here it is showing, demonstrating whom we've already been declared to be. That we are acting like the sons that we are of the king. For the last several years I've coached Thomas's soccer team. Uh, you know, I get a little excited on the sidelines, hopefully in a good way. And anytime I see Thomas doing something really good in the game, I usually yell out, that's my boy! That's my boy! You know, I'm pretty sure soon he's going to be rather embarrassed by that, so I have to rethink that strategy. But that's kind of what's going on here, that we are demonstrating our new identity in Christ, that we are sons of the living God. We expect our children to act like the, the standards of our family. And hopefully for your family and for mine, that's the standard of the Word of God. And so the same thing is happening here. If we are Christians and if we say we love God, we have to think, what is the love of God? First John 5.3 For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I'm tempted to give myself a pass of obeying God's commandments in regards to someone I don't like or if I'm struggling with hatred towards someone. The law of God isn't a pick-and-choose kind of thing. It applies all the time. In fact, six of the ten commandments have to deal with how we deal with those around us. Honoring our parents, and that includes our authorities, don't murder, Uh, let's see, honor parents, don't murder, um, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, uh, don't covet. You know, is it okay to lust after your enemy's wife just because you're enemy? Of course not. Is it okay to covet your enemy's stuff just because you're enemy? No, that's my sin, not his. It's not okay. Then why would it be okay To murder him or her in our hearts with constant anger and hatred. Why would it be okay to slander his name or or to use creative gossip to hurt him or her in the eyes of others? By loving others, by loving not just our neighbors, but also those whom we would declare to be our enemies. And Jesus really takes away that distinction here, doesn't he? We demonstrate to the world that we are sons of the living God. The second reason is because everyone is the recipient of God's care on some level. This is called common grace or the goodness that God shows to everyone no matter if they're believers or not, no matter if they're righteous or unrighteous. We see this in 45b. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If God shows kindness by giving breath and rain and life to the ungodly, not just to the godly, then how are we to act any different? Finally, in this text, we see we are called to be salt and light. We are called to have a different life, a different set of standards, a different set of actions in the world around us. We see this in verses 46 through 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You know, Jesus mentions the two groups here who were considered by that society in the time, and certainly the Pharisees, the worst of the worst. Tax collectors who were working for the Romans, their own people, they were traitors and extortioners and Gentiles who didn't have any connection to the law of God in their view. And so he's saying, look, even these people have common decency towards each other. Aren't we called to something more than just a common decency of greeting those whom you love in the street? I mean, even sinners and tax collectors do those things. Even the Gentiles who don't know the Lord do those things. Aren't we meant to do a little more? Aren't our actions, motives, emotions, and dispositions towards others, aren't they supposed to be transformed by being children of God with the Holy Spirit living inside of us? As we look at those around us, do we have the same kind of hate and rancor for those that we don't agree with or, or uh, have been sinned, sinned against by or hurt by? Do we have the same approach to those people as the culture around us? The Lord calls us to a different way altogether. We have an opportunity to show love to those whom we might consider unlovely, and it can have a huge impact on others. But there's one really big and important reason that's not in this text, it's elsewhere in Scripture, of why we should love our enemies. And that's because this is what Jesus did for you and for me. Romans 5, 8 and verse 10 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life did you get that before conversion we were the enemies of God it's not just that we just didn't want much to do with Jesus or didn't really like him all that much or we're just kind of neutral we hated him and anything that had to do with God we were running away from him in rebellion under the wrath of God And, and what did he do What was his action towards us? It was a commitment to our good. And that was ultimately salvation. That he would die in our place. That he would die in our stead paying for the sins that we were running in. That we were loving. He would pay for those sins. And then open our eyes by the Holy Spirit to see that these things which we thought we loved really are awful things. And we must seek his forgiveness for. And he gives us eternal life as demonstrated at the empty tomb, that he would defeat death itself, that he would remove the sting of death, and he now holds the keys to death and Hades. Whereas we often feel justified in hating the unrighteous, what did Jesus do? 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, hear this, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, if this is how the Lord God dealt with us, we who were his enemies, if the Lord God sent his Son to live and die and be raised in our place, how do we think we are justified in having hatred towards anybody? But the reality is we do it all the time, don't we? And so this is a call to confession. It is a call to repentance. Especially in light of verse 48. Verse 48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Jesus knows we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. Jesus is not saying that perfection is possible this side of heaven, but we are to strive for it. This is called holiness. We're called and Uh, commanded to strive for holiness, to identify sin in our lives and when we identify it, to repent of it, to turn from it and ask the Lord to help us to not run back into it. Especially in this context, the call is to love others with the perfect love that God has for His people. So as we conclude, how you doing? How are you doing? There's, There's a lot of stuff on TV right now. There's a lot going on in our culture. Is there any hatred in your heart towards anybody? The good news is that Jesus forgives vile, wretched sinners like you and me. May he help us. May he grant us the same love that he has for us. May he grant us that love for others. Let's pray. Our Father, we hear your command to love even our enemies and We don't like that because of our flesh. Help us, Lord, to love like you do, that others might see the love of Christ in our lives, and that you might work in their hearts, and they might be followers of Christ. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We will conclude our service with that great hymn, Just As I Am.